Landline. Hello, hello. This is Saul. Alex, how are you doing? I just hung up on Noah to start this podcast. I don't know if that's a, a good thing or if it even casts a shadow over the whole event. Good afternoon, podcast listeners. Good afternoon, podcast listeners. This is your host, Alex McKay, from the Landline Podcast Studios in downtown Watertown, Massachusetts, next to the police station where the Watertown heroes go in and out every day. That's right, folks. I live next to the place where the Boston Marathon bombers, capturers work. So just add it to the list of amazing things you didn't know about this podcast that makes you want to listen, that make you want to listen. So just add it to the amazing list. So just add it to the list of amazing things about this podcast that you make you want to listen. So just add it to the list of amazing things about this podcast that make you want to listen. Line! Remember, friends, tell somebody else. Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, we're calling it. Tell a friend about Landline Podcast. Send them to iTunes. Send them to SoundCloud. Send them to TalkForAliving.com. Today's episode, it will be Saul. It will be Alex. It will be a chit-chat about our week, about our month, about our year. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Well, Saul, I had a very exciting today day today. I've um, I was thinking, you know, well, Saul's coming on the podcast. What are we going to talk about? And and then I remembered that we could just go through the day, and there are just a bevy of a spider web, a bevied spider web of issues to discuss. For instance, I woke up this morning to a um, gurgling pot or burbling pot of um, braised pork country style ribs that had been in the crock pot overnight and then I um, stirred them only to then go to 6 a.m. yoga hot flow yoga with Ben for an hour followed by coming back to the house to uh, cook two eggs over easy and slide in a pile of said country style pork ribs Wow. Then on to business school where I took a four-hour exam on uh, measuring and managing strategic performance, which basically means doing Excel spreadsheets. I then went to, to get a $5 burger and a beer at a local pub. I came home to a warm and sunny Massachusetts afternoon. I was sexually active. And then I pack. Wow. And then I pack to go to uh, backcountry skiing in Alaska tomorrow. So I mean, think about all the different issues that are crossing that story that we could talk about. And sexual activity after both short ribs and burgers is pretty impressive in its own right. <laughs> and that's all we're going to talk about the sexual activity. So of all the things I brought up, you're going to have to pick something else. Well, I, I mean, the braised meat was also a conversation starter. <laughs> I was wondering whether you would put braised meat at the top of the uh, food chain there, and then uh, it was true, you did. Yeah, I mean, it, it usually finds its way to the top of, of anything. Well, I had these sort so, of country-style ribs in the fridge for almost one day too long, so I knew I had to do something with them. Um, from the uh, Farm to Table CSA I'm a part of, Farmers to You, for all you Massachusetts residents who want to get some Vermont fresh food every week delivered to your neighborhood. Uh, so farmers com. there's a little plug that we're not getting any money for. Um, so I took them out of the fridge last night, washed them off, pat them dry with a paper towel, threw them in the crock pot, opened a jar of stewed tomatoes from a famous steak restaurant that my friend's dad or my dad's friend owns in Ohio, dumped those in, Half filled that same jar with uh, organic apple cider vinegar, shook it up with some barbecue sauce, poured that in, and then just uh, liberally sprinkled chili powder, salt, 
and um, a healthy tablespoon of crushed red pepper, and then just put it on low for 10 hours, and voila. Wow. And how did it come out? Delicious? Completely delicious. I mean, between the sugar that was in the stewed tomatoes, which should be criminal, and the uh, acid in the vinegar, it, it had just the right umami, for lack of a better term. That's a good term. That sums it up. So, um, and there's nothing like, you know, people are all into breakfast for dinner. Well, what about dinner for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, that's something that, you know, it's it's a controversial topic. You know, I mean, it's, it you know, it, it has a lot of strong opinions floating around it, you know? For instance, when I used to fry baked ziti in the mornings the day after when we lived together in New York City. Look, that's a perfect example. Let's let's talk about that fried ziti. Pros and cons. Pro, it was delicious. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing better than a hot saucepan full of kind of crispy, kind of not crispy baked ziti from the night before. Pro, and you get going pretty early. I'd say by nine thirty a.m. I'd hear sizzling. Pro, it's like a major carbo load, and it's perfect for a hangover. Like if you need to walk out the door feeling like you're not going to be hungry for at least two and a half hours, a big plate of day-old baked ziti is the best. Yeah, or two and a half days. <laughs> Pro, you can like slather it in sauces. Even though it's already pre-sauced and mixed in, you can slather it with like hot sauce or like in a really big pinch of, of being white trash ketchup. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you want to list some cons, or are there any? Look, I think the cons are definitely that, um, you know, it's sort of hand-in-hand with the pros that for after you eat it for about two and a half hours, you're not really going to be scaling any mountains. <laughs> it shuts the door on certain activities. That's true. But when you're 20, you don't really care about or think about those things. I mean, another con is the cheese. So you take the big ziti out of the, you know, Lake Oh, we weren't using Lake Crusade. What would be the technical term of the sort of? Di- I guess they were Pyrexes. We were probably baking that big ziti in Pyrexes. No, we were not even at the Pyrex level. We were using the uh, kind of aluminum tins that you can buy at a supermarket for about four cents. We were using disposable pin, uh, disposable pans. Hundred percent. There wasn't a pirate in the joint. Talk about something they'll dig up when I'm running for president. <laughs> so well, four years till the next one. So um, the, another major con is you put this, you know, and of course you put the big ziti away. No one wants to transfer the big big ziti to another container. So you just, if you're 20 and you have one of those tiny New York City fridges that fits in like a, a smaller area. You just shove the whole thing into the fridge without even plastic wrap or tinfoil on it, uh, depending on how much bad red wine you've drank. And then you come out in the morning, pull it out onto the countertop. It's got that sort of, uh, you know, hardened day-old pasta shell with like a, a liberal amount of refrigerator freon taste on the top. But you just throw it all into a pan with olive oil and if there's still some garlic on the cutting board from the night before because no one did the dishes, you throw that in there. Fry it all together with, I would say, a squirt of ketchup. And if you need to, maybe some vinegar or just anything to lubricate it. Uh, I get... we, 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 can debate. we can debate the ketchup, but I, I, I'm with you on the rest. All right, you need something to re-lubricate the item. I'm just saying. Chefs, olive oil. Chefs olive are, oil all right, olive oil. And you hope if there are some corners of... The pan that has some like chunky tomato sauce in it. Get those in there. But the problem that I'm getting to in this long-winded diatribe is that the pan really is hard to clean after that morning of baked, fried big ziti. Almost impossible. Because the cheese bakes sort of into the cast iron or into the stainless steel. It's like, it's a soaker to say the least. But the thing is that for those who have tried the simpler route, which is simply reheating the ziti in an oven or perhaps a microwave, you're not getting the same flavor. It's not even the same experience. It's nowhere close. There's something about pan-fried ziti that really just doesn't. 
I think in all seriousness, reheated pasta is best done on a stovetop. I mean, there's no question. It the the tomatoes cooking on directly on the pan give it that sort of caramelized sweetness. Um, yeah. And and it really retains the heat. Like whatever science class we learned about the fact that the heat in in a stovetop you know lasts so much longer than the heat in a microwave because of the way that the molecules are uh, speeding up inside. But you, you really want, if you're going to have leftover pasta for breakfast, you, it needs to be served hot. you got to serve it hot. You can't have it clumped together, huddled in little groups in this pan. you you got to get it kind of running free in a frying pan, I mean. So anyways, breakfast for dinner, Saul. That's Or, or dinner for breakfast. Gosh, i got to keep my head on straight here. Dinner for breakfast. It was delicious. And it was, you know, protein-packed. I wasn't... I was in a great position to take my four-hour Excel exam. How'd that go? How many times did you fall asleep during it? I did great. Um, we had an exam yesterday in uh, technology and operations management, which I will not spend the rest of the podcast explaining. But um, I'm pretty sure I might have gotten the worst grade on any exam I've ever taken on that test. Um, really? Really? Yeah, so half of it was Excel and half of it is a Word document, and they format the Word document so you have specific size boxes where you answer all the questions, and then the the Excel has specific spaces where you're supposed to put the answers. And I would yeah. say I would say there are five questions with like probably five parts each. So let's say there were fifty total spaces that needed to be answered between thirty five and forty five or fifty. I don't think I answered more than half of them. The other half were blank. That's uh, that's going to need a hell of a curve. I think I probably got above average compared to the rest of the class. Hey, so you could you, you could do quite well then. One guy claimed that he didn't even submit the Word document when he handed the thing in. Oh, uh, why not? Because it had no answers on it. And he couldn't bring himself to just sort of jot down a few attempts. I don't know. He drinks like two extra large iced coffees a day and is like goes to the bathroom, like has to take a piss every 15 minutes. So you wonder why people like that don't sort of awaken to cause and effect. Let's talk about that guy. <laughs> what, what do you want to talk about? Well, he... He doesn't do his studying. He drinks too much coffee. He has strange and excessive bathroom habits. Who is this fellow? He's an odd duck. This guy is an odd duck. I mean, I got 150 kids in my business school class. A huge percentage of them are incredibly impressive and conscientious and uh, interesting and, you know, the whole rigmarole. This guy is one of a handful of odd ducks. And... He clearly is, he's on, I mean, you, you can speak to this better than, than I can once I kind of describe the sort of person he is. He's on a track because he doesn't know any other way to go. He doesn't have the creativity to come up with something other than the thing he's doing. He's 27. He's Jewish. He comes from a community where people go to graduate school. He... If he wasn't here, he'd be becoming a dentist or a lawyer or an accountant or something. So he had to like – because he had the ability and because I guess he had the book smarts, this maybe was the best school he got into. And, and he's not a bad guy and he's not dumb, but he never says anything in class. And I'm not sure he has sort of the cognitive creativity of his classmates. An odd duck, indeed. So what say you? Well, I don't know. I, th I think I'd want to know more about this story. And um, if you tried to befriend him, if you tried to take him under your wing, if you had him over for short ribs, <laughs> have you told him not to drink so much coffee? I told him not to drink so much coffee. <laughs> and did he take to the advice? He was like, yeah, I know. I was like, I was like man, you drink a lot of coffee. He's like, I know. Um, and I was kind of like, it can't be that good for you. He's like, it's probably not. 
Like he's a, he's 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 a weird guy, but he's not a bad guy. Like, and I've been to a dinner party with him, and he was fine. He's just like he's odd, and I think he would say he's odd. Yeah. But I think the coffee thing is one of those. Th- okay, knowing that you're drinking too much alcohol over a night, over a week, over a lifetime, it's pretty easy to acknowledge. If you're not, even if you're not ready to square with it, I mean, there's a guilt factor for any person who consumes alcohol, right? Whether it's a hangover the next day, or man, I drank a lot last week, or you know, the holiday period's over, I got to start fresh, or I've really been drinking too much for the last 35 years of my life. There is, there is some sense of, does that is that true with coffee? No, I mean, I think with coffee, it's kind of more normalized. Uh, people can drink a lot of it and feel like they're just sort of doing what they're supposed to be doing. And in some ways, it's a Starbucks effect. You walk around and everyone has a coffee in their hand and everyone's waiting in line to buy a coffee and everyone's talking about coffee. And so suddenly, if you're on your like fourth of the day, no one's giving you a weird look and saying like, hey, you know, maybe you should take it easy with that stuff. Well, you don't like beat your girlfriend up while you're on it and you don't... Uh... I think if I if I drank five large coffees or five glasses of wine, I'd I'd much be more inclined towards violent behavior off the coffee. <laughs> I wonder in terms of the in terms of things like you know blood pressure, uh, sleep deprivation grinding your teeth, TMJ, um, you know, proper digestive system, all those things must be affected by it. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So. I mean, these days you, I've been reading about um, how people can just, you can buy raw caffeine, just powdered caffeine or something like that. And people get it for whatever reason. They have no idea how incredibly intense it is. And they die. Wow. Yeah. Off, uh, off caffeine. I mean, they, they, their line of thought apparently is to kind of skip the coffee and just get to the good stuff. And then literally they don't realize that caffeine is just this deadly drug if you take it in pure quantities. What is caffeine? Is it made in a lab? Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat naturally occurring, but, you know, isn't everything. Maybe next week we'll come back and do the uh, the caffeine report. All right. Well, I'm Put ready. Put our researching team on it. I, you know who we should talk to about caffeine is Max Sterling. That guy knows a lot about caffeine. He he he'll do it straight with like a 16 hour drive ahead of him. Well, so here's here's the perfect part about Max and he how he manages to just abuse everything. He, I, I your very wedding. I remember. Um, he showed up. He obviously showed up much later in the day than he was supposed to and then everyone else did. And it was during that first evening during the cocktail reception. So everyone's obviously gotten settled in and been around and everything and Max hasn't. And then Max just suddenly is standing there, wherever he came from. And he's wearing a tucked in blue polo shirt, khaki pants, some sort of semi formal footwear. And he just comes straight up to me and says, we have to go get coffee. So this is at an event where coffee is not the, uh, the drink of choice. People are walking around with highballs and beers and glasses of wine and champagne and basically every possible drink that you could think of with the exception of coffee. But nonetheless, Max needs his coffee. So we get out, and obviously he hasn't slept in three days because that's what Max does. So we, we leave the ceremony and go to the bar and convince the bartender to make us or pour us cups of coffee, which obviously gets a few weird looks. And so Max is walking around. He looks essentially like a rugged golf pro, I suppose would be the, the costume he was wearing. Maybe like, and, a, maybe like a deadbeat golf pro who, who went shopping at the Goodwill is more, more apt. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know. Maybe maybe just no golf at all. Yeah, no golf at all. We, yeah, we can leave it at that. But we get you. But he has his he has his blue 
tucked in polo shirt and his nice, you know, wrinkled but still, you know, clean for the time being khaki pants. And he's walking around sipping his coffee. And obviously, who knows how many cups he had, probably in excess of 100. So then later, and that was fine. And then later on, obviously, later in the night, he finds his way to what a professor of mine once termed demon alcohol. And he starts drinking that instead. And Max, as we all know, is funny about alcohol, and he actually hates everything about it. He hates the taste. He hates the flavor. He hates when he's drunk. He just hates everything to do with it. But obviously, he still will drink it more enthusiastically than anyone. And fast forward a few hours, and I don't need to go into the ugly details. Suffice to say that he was on the floor of the bathroom, shirtless, filthy pants, covered in tomato sauce from the four different large pizzas that had been crammed down his mouth during during the last hour. So anyway, I stood there looking down at him and, um, you know, feeling these emotions probably close, most closely resembling pity as well as some slight disgust. And just thinking, here's a guy who should just stick to the coffee. <laughs> What's demon alcohol? What's demon alcohol? Yeah. Well, it's just regular alcohol with the, <laughs> the label demon on it. But let's move on, my friend. What else do we want to talk about? So many topics. Where do we start? Oh, okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you first off about an event that happened in my life that I like to call the War of the Olives. And this was indeed a war and yours truly was on one side of the trenches, and on the other side was someone else who, who we'll get to. And when I say trenches, I really mean just rows and rows of olives. Shall I go on? Please. All right. So I was at Whole Foods, and it was a big Whole Foods, really, really good selection of everything. And obviously half the reason anyone goes to that kind of store is for the samples that they have out. For me, I always basically look at it as a kind of, um, you know, fight of, re- uh, fight of retribution where if you can sample sufficiently while you're there, then in your mind you can subtract that money from what you actually pay at the checkout line. And whether that's true or not, it's a good way to think. So I'm always in my way over to the, uh, to the olive section. They have a lot of, a lot of different olives, and they have a big jar of toothpicks on either side. And my policy is to really eat a pretty large number of olives before buying any of them. In fact, many days I won't buy even a single olive. I'll just spend about 10, 15 minutes browsing through them. I'm sure you've done the same. Sure. Sure. I imagine. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Who hasn't? Keep going. Wait. All right. I'm sorry. I'm I'm tuned back in. I was trying to just fix, fix an audio issue, but keep going. Oh, come on, Alex. No, the audio's fine. I'm Saul, so it's all good. You're at the ol- I'm I'm with you. This is a good story. You're at the olive bar. I'm at the olive bar. I'm at the olive but bar. But it's not a sample situation. Well, it essentially is. They have jars of toothpicks. Okay. And this is like under the big lights with all the spoons and pitted, unpitted, Greek, Italian, the whole lineup. Yeah, you know the drill. Yeah. And obviously there's a sort of unspoken expectation that you, you know, don't spend 20 minutes kind of circling and, you know, and testing out the different olives, but no one's really going to say anything to you because you're a customer, right? right. Sure. Well, we, we all assume that until someone says something to us that nobody's going to say anything to us. So I think that that sediment fits in quite nicely with the rest of the story. <laughs> that, that sums it up. So anyway... Um, I'm minding my own business. I got my toothpicks. I'm very respectful. Each toothpick that spears an olive, I'm then careful to throw it away and get a new toothpick. I'm not, you know, jabbing them into, you know, multiple olives or anything like that. You're not, uh, you're not double dipping the chip to use the parlance of our times. Right, or the parlance of like 20 years ago in the 90s. But yeah, the, the point, the point is, I'm, I'm not being a barbarian. What's that music? Um, just something, something. God damn it, Alex. What are you doing over there? <laughs> Saul, don't worry. Don't worry. I got this, buddy. 
Look, I'm already agitated just thinking back to the War of the Olives. I think I think the agitation is good. Just, now I'm just suspicious that you're fiddling with something and not even listening at all. I am listening, and we all all we. I am listening, and we are going to include all this fighting in the podcast. All right, so keep... Well, look, thank, thank God for our listeners, because at least someone out there will hear my voice, even if it's not you. <laughs> okay. So, so I'm So, but I'm I mean, we, we know what you're doing. You're picking, you're choosing, you're being a... I'm picking, I'm choosing. You're being a food then, hoarder. You're being a weird food hoarder. I'm just... I'm, I'm browsing. <laughs> I'm like a cow in a pasture. I'm just doing my thing, grazing, moving along. And then this, I hear this voice just sort of cutting into my personal space. And it's this woman's voice, very unpleasant, very kind of brassy. And she just says, excuse me, were you just using your hands to eat those olives? So I turn in shock. What, what could this new attack be from this, you know, and it was from my flank, you know. So I, I spin around to face the source of it. And it's this woman... Middle-aged, I'd, I'd peg her at about 48 to 53, I'd say, in that in that zone. Um, dressed not particularly nicely, not particularly sloppily. Well, Just wait. Sort of an, what, an average woman. Was yeah. she wearing a Whole Foods apron? Like, that was that no, part of her no. dress? That's the thing. She wasn't. Okay. She not. She showed, unless, at that point, unless she was plain clothes, she had no affiliation that I could see. She didn't whip out a badge. She didn't, you know, proclaim herself to be on their, you know, security team or anything like that. Just a woman. Did she look like she was from the Upper Valley? She could have passed, yeah. I, I feel like her hair might have been badly dyed, but I, I could have just been so enraged that I was seeing red and projecting that crimson color onto her normal hair. That's it, Saul. Though you, you won the prize, the difference between women of the area we grew up in and women other places is that the women where we grew up do not dye their hair. They just let it go gray. It doesn't matter how early it is. But anyways, exactly. keep, keep exactly. going. Keep going. So she, she fired the first shot and it was a, you know, it was a complete shock to me and it was a surprise. And I just look around and I held up my toothpick and I said, <laughs> actually you're mistaken. I'm using toothpicks for the olives. And that was it. And so she, she walked away and, you know, I, I sort of turned back. And well, let me take that back. That, that could have been it. The story could have ended that. But then I just sort of stood there just quivering in anger because you don't call someone out like that unless you're 100% sure. Can we agree on that? I, my thing is, you don't even call someone out on that if they are eating from the olive bar. This is where I've, I've, I've changed as a person in the last few years. If I don't want people saying anything about me not having my dog in, on a leash at the, at, in the park, in, the, in like a beautiful walking trail, then I give up the right to really tell anybody to do anything short of them, you know, abusing someone or um, abusing me. Or putting me in some sort of danger situation, I they could put their whole face in the olives, and I'll think they're a crazy person, and I won't be that surprised. So it's not my responsibility. I don't work at Whole Foods, and honestly, the world is going to do what it's going to do, regardless of my little petty, you know, commentary. And well, I guess I shouldn't say that, or I should just hang up the podcast. But the world's going to do what it's going to do, regardless of my interjection, unless it comes into something big. I, I'm I'm not. A politician for the for the petty issues. Yeah. Okay. So I so look. I I think that puts you on one one end of the spectrum. I'd say I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. I I think if I saw someone blatantly, you know, grabbing handfuls of olives barefisted or you know, licking one and you know, chucking it towards the container, you know, being in flagrant violation, then I'd say something. But you know. At any rate, you got to be sure about these things. You can't go off half-cocked. So I stood there thinking about it, about this meddlesome woman who had just ruined my feng shui as I was eating olives by myself, pretty happy, and just completely darkened my mood. And then suddenly in my mind, I, um, I sort of, her features began to blur, and I began to think back in time, towards when I was in high school and I'd run into these different meddlesome older women 
who had control over me, maybe at like a diversion hearing or a parent or something like that of certain people. I won't name any, you know, names or anything like that, but just basically older women who didn't get what I was all about and were punishing me in some way. And so this woman suddenly was conflated with, with all of these going right back to like age 13 or so. Maybe that sounds crazy, but I'm telling it like it is. Hey, I think you're onto something here. I mean, I think you, the, the phrase didn't get, didn't get you, didn't get what you were all about. That's a whole topic unto itself about, you know, (laughs) bad parenthood, bad teaching, bad connection with youth. So absolutely. so, So continue. So then I just sort of stood there for a few more seconds and I realized that now I'm an adult. And although some people would define adulthood as having the ability to shake off that sort of thing and just move along through the day, I defined adulthood in that moment as not needing to take shit and having a right to to say my mind. So I cast aside my toothpicks, all thoughts of olives forgotten completely. And I had a new goal in mind. And so I spent about five minutes just running around the whole food store until I found this woman. She'd moved on, and I think she was over by the bakery section by that point. And so I caught up to her, and um, let's just say that this time she didn't fire the first shot. And I just went straight up, and I'm going to try not to use the language that I used in that moment, but I told her very plainly, that she had no right to be telling me anything about my behavior, anything about touching the olives, and I thought she was deeply, deeply unpleasant for doing so. And I don't mind admitting that there was some profanity mixed in there. Did you say fuck? At least seven times (laughs) in, like, the first sentence. And what did she do? This is like a dream of mine. This is me wanting to yell at the people who tell me to use my leash. Oh, yeah, you should. Take it from me. It, it's just... it felt really good. Um, and she got really angry. She got really, really angry. Um, and started sort of uh, shouting right back. And, it, you know, it was a, it was a scene. It, it, went from, it went from not scene to scene with a pretty sort of severe barometric escalation. But what was, and, what was the, f- okay, please finish, because we're going to figure out what this fight was really about, because we know what it was about for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think I know what it was about for her. So anyway, um, I was not going to be conquered. I was not going to be cowed. Um, I shouted her down. I told her what I thought of her. I told her what I thought of her meddling. I explained in no uncertain language how... I felt, in my opinion, she must be like for the rest of her people in her life to have to live or associate or deal with. And I told her that these meddlesome tricks were not appreciated, were not wanted, and that she should take them to some other fucking store. And then I fired off, have a great fucking day, you miserable something. I didn't say anything too nasty and marched away. And that was the that was the war of the olives. And no one was arrested. No one was escorted out of the uh, organic supermarket, or what, what happened from there? No, I mean, I, I actually for a moment thought that it might escalate to the point where sort of uh, Whole Foods personnel would become involved. But the truth is that I spend so much money at Whole Foods. I mean, really, so much money that. I was, I was very secure thinking that if worse comes to worst, that I'd look, I'd look at them and I'd say, I, I guarantee you that you want to keep having me as a customer more than this. So what, and they would have. what was, so she was 48. Did, did you think she had kids? Like, let's just project. Did she have kids? Yeah, I, I absolutely think she had kids. I think those kids are miserable. She probably had Two, I'd say two of them. One was probably very early teens. Maybe the other one was like eight years old or something like that. Let's say like eight and like 12 or like nine and uh, 13. And was shopping for groceries her job or was she there after work? That's a good question. Uh, 
gosh, this must have been, I'd peg it somewhere between um, two and five in the afternoon. So she, she might not have been working that day for all we know. She really might not have been. So, and she looked, a, you know, she looked a little weird. So but, what, you know. what was her beef? Why didn't she, why did she feel that, forget about why she thought it was gross if you were putting your hands in the olives. Why did she think it was her business to say something? Yeah, exactly. And to me, she's just a type, and just to make it clear, I'm not associating this with a gender. I think that many, many guys out there are incredibly nosy and meddlesome, and she could just as easily have been some interfering guy. So I'm not at all trying to say that, but I think that she was of a type of person, whether male or female, who likes to meddle and who kind of walks around looking out of the corner of their eye for ways to meddle. And for all I know, this person sat, this woman probably sat on a diversion board so she could tell 14-year-olds who had been caught smoking that they were losers and that they were going to get in a lot of trouble and throw the book at them. I could totally see her doing that. She sounds like the woman I had to deal with at the DMV three days ago. <laughs> well, she probably she probably was. There's a, there's a certain type out there. They like petty power. And to, just to be clear, I like petty power, but they like they like to meddle. They like um, having those sort of small examples of telling people off. And it gets under my skin. It really does, because we're all adults here. I wasn't some 12-year-old kid running around a store, you know, throwing cornflakes on the ground. So anyway, I, right. I'll, conclude, I'll conclude by just saying that the experience to me was deeply satisfying. And if I hadn't done it, I think I'd still be upset that I hadn't done it and it held my tongue. And to me, it's a good example of where sort of doing the adult thing and taking the high road are really just the wrong advice. And the way to do it is roll up your sleeves, get down in the gutter and just speak your mind. Well, we don't want that person making any decisions that influence our lives in any way whatsoever. So if you can start stop the fire at the olive bar, it might stop the fire when you have to see her at the psychiatrist's office because she's the receptionist or the she's the ambulance driver or, you know, she's the voting official who tells you you're late, like whatever. It's like she needs to be told at every opportunity that people don't like the way that she treats them. Yeah, yeah, just constantly held in check. But nobody does it, and nobody talks to each other anymore, and everyone's path is just avoiding one another. I mean, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's a, a generalization, but I don't often... I try to put love into the air when it comes to interactions with strangers, um, but nothing like that's happened to me recently. So I also have a major fear of conflict like that. I don't know why. I actually had to write a paper about it this week, a final paper for this class called Creative Leadership in Organizations. And we had to write a really long self-reflective paper um, that kind of analyzed what we had learned, but also talked about what struggles we were going to have moving forward as an entrepreneurial leader. And one of the major struggles that I identified, in addition to things that we can all pretty much, you know, rip off the top of our head, like having no patience and feeling like people aren't as smart as I am because they don't come up to the answer as fast as I do, even though my answer isn't necessarily the right one, and even though people just don't simply think the same way as other people. Anyways, the one that was a little bit more in-depth was um, what – sorry. Um, oh, my God. But just to cut in, it's funny because I thought you loved conflict. Oh, right. The, my problem is that I hate having conversations about conflict directly with people. I don't like telling, I don't like reprimanding people for ways that they behave at work. I don't like giving them instruction that institutes a new policy that they need to follow. I worry about negotiations with people I'm buying things from. I, I like, I fold on in face to face negotiations. It makes, Wait, is this, is this still Alex on the phone? Yeah, it's true, Saul. I'm not good at it. I'm not as good at I, it as you are. Look at the Volvo. You haven't even heard about the Volvo. How much do you think I got for the Volvo? It's not my driveway anymore. I, I think that you got 
closer to what I thought you'd get than what you thought you'd what get. Do, do you remember not. what you said I would get? Oh, God. The over-under, was it you like said 2000 or 1200 No, you, you said that you said I wouldn't get a dime over 2500 and that you thought over it was... Over 2500 Yeah, I got 2300 all right, and it was listed at thirty five hundred. So I was wrong. I put thirteen hundred in it, into it to get the twenty three hundred. <laughs> well, you came out on top at least. And when the guy was like, "How low can you go on this?" I was like twenty eight hundred, and he said, "How about twenty two? And we settled on twenty three. Why didn't you just then say twenty six? Because he was a mechanic, and he saw that there was a bent wheel and a like a tire that had the sidewall nicked, and he pointed it out to me and he said that's why it was making a womp 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 sound which he was right about and it had a cracked windshield which was fine for massachusetts but he claimed wouldn't pass inspection in new hampshire so we did that back of the envelope math and that was going to be another five to eight hundred bucks plus there was an accelerator pedal problem so it was like it was it was good that i got rid of it but i shouldn't have spent i could have gotten 1500 1300 ago which would have equaled 2800 but i didn't because but I, I gotta say, it's also to me, you never want to sell to a mechanic because they they know too much about it. You know, it's it's like if you, you know, if I have a diamond I'm trying to get rid of, and so I, you know, stumble into the diamond district and try to explain why I should get a certain amount to one of the jewelers, and then they go through a long list of deficiencies in the diamond. I mean. It, you, you never want to sell to an expert in his or her field, you know? Well, he was the only guy who would come by and drive the fucking thing, so I sold it to him. But let's go back to my fear of conflict. I don't think you have a fear of conflict. I think you have a love of conflict. I love conflict, but not one-on-one. I don't like, I don't, let me just finish this and then you can analyze it. I don't like looking into someone's eyes and know that any negotiation will take away from their point of view. I don't like the feeling of thinking that they are going to, I feel guilty if we walk away and they get less than they wanted. Okay, but that's, to be fair, that's more negotiation than conflict. I mean, I'm understanding that negotiation is a form of conflict, but it's also a form of of not conflict. It's a form of communication. And to me, that's different from sort of out and out hostility, which you've always been so good at. Yeah. And I'm also great at talking shit, but not necessarily two people's faces. Right. I mean, that's why I have a podcast, but why do you, how do I get better at it? Let's not, let's not try to explain why I'm wrong. Cause I, I am admitting right now, I wish that I was better at negotiation and I think it's important, especially as I embark on a business career. Like, for instance, I'm negotiating a contract with someone right now who's going to teach me how to make the ice cream. She gave me a number. The number is completely reasonable. And it's... If you mean you, a number that represents her salary? It's, it's going to be a consulting fee for the scope of work that we've decided on. And yeah. if in, she approximated the number of hours she thinks it's going to take us to make it happen... If you divide the consulting fee by the hours, it's she's getting less than she would to teach an ice cream class. So she's giving me, a business person, a better deal than she's giving a retail customer, which I guess makes sense if you're selling something like wholesale. But really, the value I'm going to get out of it is going to be way higher than someone who's going to be able to make ice cream at home, right? Yeah. So my first instinct is to just not even give her a counteroffer because I feel like if I nickel and dime her down, and let's just say that I'm not going to tell you the amount, but it's, you know, a few thousand bucks. So if I could get a few hundred off of it, then is that worth her then being sort of pissed about that from here on out? Well, I think it depends. I mean, obviously, you don't you don't want someone to, you know, poison the ice cream, so to speak. I mean, you don't you don't want to leave someone feeling that they've been so nickeled and dimed that they're just overwhelmed with bitterness, and that's going to seep into the product. But I think the kind of the fun part about negotiations, and I spent about four years doing a lot of it, hiring people and, you know, going back and forth with salary and, you know, reviews and raises and stuff like that. And I got, you know, I, I got a lot of sort of uh, time in that, in that arena. And I think that a successful negotiation is, you know, it can be one where you don't get exactly what you walked in wanting and you also get 
something more than you walked in being offered. And so both people can kind of walk away a little happy about that. I know. I just wish that I, I know. I, I don't know. I know that I'm just going to, that I'm making mistakes and I always have with stuff like this, but it's almost like I would rather feel as if I live in a world where someone offers me their services for a certain amount, I agree to it, and then they give me the value of that because it's what they agreed to do. So if she says it's going to be X and I say okay, that I get X out of her versus me negotiating down 5%, let's say, and getting her to actually do 15% less than she would have because she was in a bad mood about it. Yeah, that's, that's a risk. But it's also a risk that now every time you look at her, you'll be subconsciously annoyed because you'll think of those extra few hundred bucks. Yeah. And it'll affect your mood, too. Yeah. Well. But again, to me, I understand. Okay, here's the best way to say it. Are you saying you have a fear of conflict or confrontation? Because they're kind of two different things. Confrontation is more negotiation, where you're having to give someone news that they don't want to hear. Conflict is more kind of like, to hell with it, let's, um, you know, let's throw away the pen and reach for the sword. I'll describe what it is that I don't like, and you can come up with the word. I Maybe, don't, sure. I, I mean, because I don't know what the word is. I don't like sitting across the table from someone and getting feedback from them. I don't like sitting across the table from someone and giving them feedback. I don't like speaking up in a situation where somebody's acting in a way that is uh, detrimental to the group and explaining to them in a slow, calm, conscientious way why it's screwing up the group, even though I know I can. I don't like to talk about what somebody did right or wrong, specifically, right to their face. I would rather email it. Um, I don't really like to well, be... Well, yeah, but most people, that's a, that's a human impulse, obviously, you know, to be able to just shoot out an email. But you take these classes about organizational behavior and emotional intelligence, and it's like, this is where bosses, this is where CEOs really make their money. You read the New York Times business section, this is where people, you don't know about semiconductors when you're in the, in the computer, if you're a CEO of a computer chip business, you know about managing a giant organization full of people. That's what you're good at. And what you need to be Yeah, able... I mean, it can, that can go... There's counterexamples, but I, I know what you're saying. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. you're in, like, the startup hotbed. But when it comes to, like, old-fashioned American business, it's usually... Even startups, once they need to scale, they bring in someone from outside to figure out how to actually run the company. And the people who are good at the innovation continue to run all the things that need innovation. But... Ultimately, when you get to a certain tipping point, you really need someone who's good at the business of running a business versus good at running a specific business. Yeah, I understand that. Okay. I, understand that. I mean, whatever. And it's not like I'm teaching you a lesson. I think everyone would understand that. But it's an important point to, to figure out because the alternative is being a crazy entrepreneur who always has really good ideas and always has a ton of energy, at least until they're a certain of a certain age and of a certain, you know, uh, uh, pessimism. But just but just to back up, just to back up, you know, it. I I've always thought that you said you don't like sort of sitting next to someone or across from them and hearing what things you don't want to hear and telling them things that they don't want to hear. But look at all those jobs where you landed in hot water because you either told people something that they didn't want to hear when you weren't supposed to or when they didn't want you to, or because you didn't like being receptive to them telling you something that you didn't want to hear, such as about your behavior, you know, or, um, you know, or what you could do better or something. Yeah. Well, it happened. I mean, isn't that true? What? what? That, that happens, but I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a pattern. I always thought that you thrived on conflict. No, I, I mean, in terms of, like, what jobs are you thinking of? Like, The Onion, Stumptown? Yeah, both of those came to mind. The long email I read at the end of that podcast a couple times ago. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that, too. Um, all right, well, in turn, Stumptown, 
I just my heart wasn't in it. I got a job in a windowless office putting shit into Excel, writing invoices and answering the phones. It was like it was like a secretary's job for Mad Men, basically. Um Did you get to sleep with your boss after a few martinis? No. I I don't wish. Sorry, bad joke. Bad joke. No, I mean it that would have if my boss if my boss was Don Draper, I probably would have tried to do that. Let's be honest. Um, but we move on. But then, like, the reason I got fired from the Onion was because I would like do things. I mean, I was nineteen years old. I were however twenty three years old. I would I would walk into meetings where a bunch of production managers were talking with my mouth full of bagel and cream cheese and give them a like a creative suggestion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's my plan. Well, yeah, but someone who was truly scared of of conflict and confrontation would have just stood there eating his bagel. But so that, to me, that illustrates how I do like to communicate. I like to come into a room full of people with ideas and then have the best idea, whether or not it's actually the best idea doesn't matter. I like to feel as if I do. I like to I like I like to take over a you know a, a stable full of of you know rodeo clowns. I like to I like to basically round up a bunch of crazy bulls and like whip them into shape and feel like they're all following me towards the bull rush or whatever the analogy would be. I don't like to sit one-on-one and be like, I feel as if the organization would be more effective if people communicated in a way that, you know, empathize more with their point of view. I don't like to have that conversation, even though I, I'm actually maybe the fastest guy at perceiving that issue. Like my, 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 how do you say per- perceiving my, my pursuit? No, my, pers- my, uh, how do you say perceive in a, in a, uh, past tense verb form? Perceived okay. or your perception of that. My perception. Exactly. My perception of interpersonal situations is really, really, really good. And yet I don't know how to leverage that into communication that leads me to success. Does that make sense? Yeah. And look, none of of the things I'm saying are attempted as critiques in any way. Um, If I have a critique about you, I'll just send you an email or or tell Tim or something like that. (laughs) But my my point is I I think that we, we should come back to this in future podcasts and talk about whether you actually don't like conflict or whether you do and you've just convinced yourself that you don't. Yeah. I mean, maybe, well, what I said in the paper was basically I'm going to have to start doing it and feeling what it feels like so that I can get better at it. So I can sit there and do it because if I, the, the, what I'm doing right now at business school and for all you people out there are wondering like, why do people go to business school and you make jokes about how they want to play golf or they're already a rich white person from Connecticut and it's what their dad did. Like, and those are valid. Um, what you learn at business school is how to separate yourself from the sale and start being the one who is pulling the levers in the organization to be making sales when you're not even working, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea behind going to a, a graduate level program about business theory, business operations, business strategy is that you can start sort of like laying the groundwork to create an organization that works on itself. And that's a fun and exciting thing. So if that's what I'm focusing on doing, and it is, and I want to be at the top of that organization, I'm going to need to lean in a little bit more on how to do this stuff effectively. And I'm not saying that I'm incapable of it, but I wish it came to me a little bit more naturally. All right. That's fair. To be to be continued. Well, Maybe we just have to find you your olive woman. Yeah, I mean, that would be a great class to take, right? That would be great. Instead of like improv, if you could get into conflict, like conflict negotiation role play, that must exist, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we could just hire this woman to to go to your business school and walk around meddling and see who is really ready to push back. All right, Saul, we got a couple of minutes left here. How do you want to wrap it up? I feel like we've gone, uh, we've gotten probably 50% of this has been like, you know, A range. 25% has been like B range and 25% has been C range. And I can definitely snip out the C. So maybe we could just 
like have a nice tight five to ten to cinch it up, little B plus A minus range, and then we can call it. it sounds good to me. Let's let's do it. Um, any to- I mean, I can edit this out. Any topics? Like, what are our options here? Well, look, we might as well go over news of the week really quick. Oh, do you have some? There's always news going on. So, first of all, um, let's see. We can start with something. Um, we can start with something a little bigger. Let's go to North Korea. Um, North Korea's young, brash leader is making increasingly vocal threats about preemptive nuclear strikes, which would obviously involve places that he could actually hit, meaning South Korea or Japan. What do we think? What's, what's this guy doing? Um, he's obviously one step away from just being overthrown and killed in some kind of vicious North Korean coup. But at the same time, uh, he's definitely sort of casting a giant nuclear-shaped cloud over the world. I am a 33-year-old white American male, and I am emotionally detached from the conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Okay, so you just don't care that much. No, I, what I'm trying to say is, like, what all we've been hearing about North Korea since we were eight or six, when we can first remember watching Tom Brokaw, is, like, they're testing missiles, life there is terrible, and some, like, portly, five-foot-four North Korean guy with a weird haircut is in charge, and he's crazy. Like, that's the story. We have, I, we have, I have 33 years of this story in my lifetime. So what's, ha- like... I don't want anything to happen because I guess this is better than them doing anything, but I, I've never seen them do anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, like even look, a, maybe, a skirmish at the border. Years, maybe a hundred years from now, there'll still be some portly North Korean dictator running North Korea and talking about preemptive nuclear strikes. But wh- okay, let's just talk a little bit of strategy here. You know, the Pentagon has got a 5,000-page, you know, plan for all the different things that North Korea could do. They put a bomb on a plane. They do this. They sell a bomb to the to a suitcase, you know, smuggler. We're going to do this. You know, if this, then that. So I, I feel like the first time they move a pawn on the chessboard, we're just going to, like, completely take out their military arsenal, right? Do we do we believe, I know they have a million soldiers in their standing army, but do we actually think, they don't have the technology to do anything, do they? Uh, they have some technology, but more importantly, we can't really do that much without risking nuclear war. Okay, but so if they, if they test a short range, or if they fired a missile at South Korea, I'm pretty sure South Korea has a defense system that we sold them that shoots that nuclear missile down. I think that's what the last 55 years of military spending has been all about. Oh, it might or might not. But obviously that sort of, they, they understand that if they actually nuke a country, then that's the end of their country. But it's, that's the sort of uh, weird part about uh, nuclear powers. You can't really do that much to each other. Well, I mean, they could nuke Seoul... And they and you know whatever I mean this is this is again we're we're having a completely hypothetical conversation here people we know that this is not they could nuke Seoul and a hundred thousand people could die and within three minutes every single military installation in their country would be obliterated yeah so, absolutely so that's why they're not doing anything so I guess I just wonder like what are they gonna do is that what that guy's gonna do. Uh, who knows? Who knows? I, right. think, I think he is a little nuts, but um, that's the that's the news around the world. I I say I, I, that's the invasion. That's the kind of invasion we should do. Don't all those North Koreans want to just be reunited with South Koreans and like work at Samsung? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, go get jobs building refrigerators. Of like, course, it's like want. build like building or just go get actual refrigerators. Like, yeah. I mean, honestly, like. Korea, South Korea is a pretty posh place to be. Yeah, I, I think that eventually sort of the whole East-West Berlin and Germany thing is, is what people are wanting. Now, move, moving along, 
Um, they're also this week launching the world's largest cruise ship ever built. Uh, it's got 16 decks. It weighs 227,000 tons. Tons spelled the British way with two ends. And it's 210 feet tall. It's called the Harmony of the Seas. So does this bother you? Or, or, I mean, cruise ships are all about size. They're about the size of the buffet. They're about the size of the passengers. They're about the size of the boat. You know, there's something about cruising that just makes everyone go to the biggest possible proportions. But what do you think? Is this? Are you getting sick of it? Do you think that this boat, for example, is 6,000 passengers and 2,000 crew? At a certain point, are they just? Are you going to be sick of hearing about these giant boats pedaling around the earth? How many passengers do they need to put on it for it to sink? Is the question that I'm asking. <laughs> oh, it's the buffet's doing well, and not that many. I hate cruise ships. I've never been on one, but I think that they are a blatant disrespect for the acknowledgement that we have a sustainability issue on earth forget about recycling forget about carbon footprint the population of the world is growing to a place where even if we stayed at the same level of consumption we would consume all the resources and not be able to sustain the population growth right i mean i've seen a, an incredible economist who's in charge of a hundred billion dollar fund I think his name is Jeremy Grantham, and he gave a speech about how if you just look at the way population growth is happening, our only hope is that people stop having kids, okay? So how does this connect to cruise ships? I just – we know the oceans are sick. We know the coral reefs are dying. We know that we killed all the whales. We know that the fish are pretty much out. Like basically when it comes to eating, the ocean is closed. I know that you'll never believe that in your lifetime. But it, it's like full of... No, I do. I, I do. I, I fully am behind the fact that we're ruining everything. So, so, I mean, have you seen WALL-E? Have you seen that animated movie, WALL-E? No, I just don't watch animated movies. It's a thing. All right. Well, it's probably of the last 10 years, one of the 20 best movies I saw. And in it, it's like a, you know, dis utopian future probably within 100 years but people live on cruise ships that that are in space and all their food just comes out of a cup with a straw and they go around on these sort of like rascal scooters that are actually hovering and they live on these <laughs> space cruises and that's their life and to me that's what a cruise ship is it's just a, a somebody who's sitting there and there's no survival whatsoever you're sitting there you're getting fed you're shitting why does it need to be on the ocean, I guess? Why can't they all just go to the desert, to like a big condominium complex and eat and fuck and dance and see like Siegfried and Roy and then fly home? Why does it have to be on the ocean? It's the allure of the high seas. That's just how it has to be. I would be okay. Once, once you get out on the water, then you get to just throw away all, all thoughts of civilized behavior. But more, more specifically to your point, Saul, which I think is a great question. I'm sorry I didn't answer it. Can we believe they're still building, building bigger ships? Like, we, they, they know they're guilty. They're in the boardroom talking about their, their, their marketing guys coming in, looking at their negative numbers, looking at the EPA, looking at the Sierra Club, looking at all these people who are saying that cruise ships are one of the most polluting enterprises of vacation on the earth. And yet... They're like, well, let's build a bigger ship. That's like building a car with worse gas mileage. Yeah. They, um, there's something about it. It's just a uh, look. I mean, it's you know, I hate to say it, and I don't mean to be vulgar, but um, with the cruise companies, they're all whipping them out and seeing who's biggest, and they all want to have the biggest ship. That's just a thing. Well, and they I... clearly feel that if they do, then more people will want to be on that ship than other ships it's also just the economic model whatever hedge fund owns these cruise companies is saying look if we can have only 1.65 the you know um fixed costs but have 2.75 the people then we can make a shitload more money so 
I, yeah, the, 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 quite probably. The buffet itself is the problem. Basically, a bunch of food, not in season, shipped from all over the world, grown year-round, you know, full of GMOs, and then served in, like, really boring traditional ways, full of salt and sugar and fat, and then, and then just, like, all the leftovers are probably just dumped off and, and let off into the ocean with all the shit that they're just leaching out into the ocean. <laughs> all right. On that note, I think we got to wrap. All right, you got to go. You don't have a last story. You got you're, you got a hard out. I got it. I got to go. All, all right. Road, yeah. Uh quick intentions for the week. I'm going to Alaska. My intention is to not die in an avalanche. I will tell you about the Alaska ski trip next podcast. I can't wait. Flying to Seattle and then Anchorage tomorrow. We'll be there for four nights, five days with great friends of Saul and I's and my brother-in-law to see our good friend Sean, who lives in Alaska, is a helicopter ski guide and a mountain guide on Denali. And that's my intention. Don't die in an avalanche. What about for you, Saul? My intention is to resist Max's peer pressure because he keeps telling me I have to change my life by joining an MMA gym and buying a dog. And I think that that would put me on a very different path. And we can talk more about that because he really is becoming insistent. But I'm going to try to hold off one more week. I think the dog's a good idea. Okay, the mixed martial arts gym will debatable. Well, have a great weekend. I will call you from Alaska to set up our next pod. Thank you guys for listening. Go to talkforaliving.com to listen to more shows. Go to soundcloud.com slash podcast. And find us on iTunes under Landline Podcast. I'm Alex. That's Saul. Thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend and come back again to listen to more Landline Podcasts. Enjoy Alaska. Thanks. Enjoy California. Talk to you later. Bye. I'm done. I'm done.